Well, we're looking at this and go, okay, what's the lesson for us? Well, you don't change really what works. That's one of the things you've got to get used to, but you also do have to innovate. You can't get stagnated. And this is what's really confusing for a lot of people in, uh, as creators. So one of the sayings I like is follow the money because in the beginning, that will tell you where to go. Backrub became Google. Datsun became Nissan. Blue Ribbon Sports became Nike. Brad's Drink became Pepsi-Cola. Can you imagine what is going to happen to Facebook? Now it's meta. Well, let's get that story sorted in just a minute and let's understand what's actually happening. I want to talk about rebranding, what it means for you, what it's going to mean going forward and to follow your wins and your successes and then to know to dump the failures. Okay. Hey everyone, it's Vaughn here. Let's talk about some failures and successes in rebranding in the greater world of massive corporations and companies. But first of all, let's understand what is a company? Well, what is it? Have you ever thought of it like this? A company is actually an individual, a person, but it's made up. It's in our minds, right? It's something we all agree to, but it actually isn't real in the sense of the physical world, but it's as real as anything according to law. I mean, a company pays taxes, a company has rights, a company can fire you, right? Well, it's the people within the company, right? That can do that. But fundamentally, it's treated just as if it's a person, the way it operates on paper. So I guess this is what we all have to understand is fundamentally, you and I support companies that we know, like, trust. We build an affinity towards that brand, become something synonymous with a thing. Now, then you mess with that brand. Ooh, you better watch out because you can really piss people off if you try to change things. Something as you might perceive as simple as a logo can have dramatic effects when you're at scale, when you are huge, when you are, as they say, a home name, and you start to make shifts in your unique selling proposition, or you make shifts within your logo, or shifts within how you try to do business, i.e. the products and services you render, you make redundant, or you try to pivot on them, you better be careful because people can really get annoyed by that. You can lose business. In fact, you can lose customers and a whopping amount of them too. They can decide not to go with you anymore because you could become a sellout, quote unquote, right? This happens with music artists all the time, right? Like music artists create totally different sounds and that is their artistic right, right? That is, there is no license on creativity. Of course they can, but people, look, when you're unknown, no one's paying attention. You can do whatever you want. All of a sudden you get known, you get known for a sound, you get known for a style. Well, that becomes synonymous with your brand. And if you change that, you start to really alienate people. Now, whether that's good or bad is not what we're actually going to discuss today. So I'm not getting into the politics of the, the politics, the politics of Facebook becoming meta. And we're going to understand what that means in just a second. To, to my limited understanding, I'll, I'll go through this. We're going to look at what does it mean for you in your quest to scale, to move, to build a business that you know, love and, tr and, and enjoy yourself, because I think that is really the takeaway here. Now, one of the things to look at is throughout history, the way 
companies, uh, you know, work essentially is that they have customers and those customers buy things repeatedly and therefore they become loyal to the brand. And again, we've harped on that knowing that we don't want to break that affinity too much because you can lose customers, but likewise, you also create customers from doing it the right way as well. So now if we look at the idea here of uh, Facebook in and of itself. So Facebook is a social media product. That's what we all have to understand. Now, people really are the product when it comes to social media, but fundamentally, Facebook is a brand for social media. But Facebook itself was also a company that owned other products and services like Oculus Rift. Oculus Rift is essentially augmented reality. Mark Zuckerberg has many of these companies bought under the Facebook banner. So the way to picture this is that you've got Facebook at the top of an umbrella, and then you've got the little wires coming out of the umbrella, which link to other companies. And fundamentally, that could be Oculus Rift, or that could be even Facebook advertising, or Instagram, or WhatsApp, all being owned by Facebook. So Facebook changing its name to Meta is typically uh, like a holding company. or well, it's not a holding company. I think it's a parent company. So Facebook becomes like the, the child, if you will. That's the way I think of it anyway. And there's definitely legal structures around this, of course. The way it's all formulated is done by people way smarter than me. So I'm not going into that. But you have to understand it's like this. Meta is the top company. And then under that, you've got all of the companies that what used to be Facebook, Meta now owns, Facebook being one of them. So Facebook is owned by Meta, but so is Oculus Rift and Instagram and WhatsApp and all the other companies that Facebook has acquired over the years. Now, this is not the first time this has happened. So Google did this. Back in 2015, it all of a sudden switched to Alphabet. I bet you didn't know that, right? Maybe you did. Maybe you're an investor in Google. But the reason you didn't need to worry about it is because it didn't mean anything. All it meant was a legal structure restructuring. And, and I mean, it's very smart if you think of it, because what Google was essentially avoiding was antitrust corruption um, or antitrust litigation, because they had, and Google is known for this, they had acquired so many companies under their umbrella that they weren't just search, right? They weren't search engine anymore. They were now in tech and robotics and, you know, probably medical fields all over the place because they would just acquire competition to snuff them out. They'd also acquire competition to bring them under the fold of Google to enhance Google itself. The problem is you become what? A monopoly. Now, this has happened before with Standard Oil. Let me just bring this up for a second. All right. So this is from National News Business 2021. So John D. Rockefeller, Standard Oil Company, controlled 90% of the oil production in the U.S. As a result, antitrust suit was filed in 1906, and the company was accused of raising prices where it had a monopoly and slashing prices where it faced competition. The oil company was broken into 34 companies in 1911 based upon geographical region. The two successor companies are now the largest oil companies in the U.S., Chevron and ExxonMobil. In 2000, Chevron acquired Texaco or Texaco in a deal valued at $45 billion, and it became Chevron Texaco only to drop Texaco from its name. A year later, two of Standard Oil's largest offshoots reunited in a blockbuster merger. Now, the point is this, that when you are one giant company or corporation, and then you have like, you buy up other companies underneath you, you become a target. And so Google became Alphabet and that became the top company, if you will, the, the parent 
of the uh, the children, right? And so you got the top, the father above all, owning these other ones. So you can't really confuse them uh, or say that they are now, you know, dominating one space in particular. All right. So now you still may use Google. I personally use different search engines, but Google is still known for search. Facebook will still be a product social media app. That's what it will be. It will not, they're not going to change to meta. That would be crazy, right? Like my, my bet is Facebook ain't changing its name, right? Like why would it do that when you got like 2 billion people using your platform? You just wouldn't do that. It's too confusing. Not good idea. Like just even changing your logo can send ripple effects. Okay. So changing your name is like suicide in a lot of instances. So you just don't do that. It's just bad for business. But but they, you know, if they do do that, that's maybe they can because they're so freaking big. But typically, once you get known for something, you know, it's not like Apple's going to change their name to Orange, right? That would just be weird. Like they'd be competing against uh, telco companies in, Eng- in England. So I guess the point being is that what are we doing here? Well, we're looking at this and going, okay, what's the lesson for us? Well, you don't change really what works. That's one of the things you've got to get used to, but you also do have to innovate. You can't get stagnated. And this is what's really confusing for a lot of people in, uh, as creators. So one of the sayings I like is follow the money because in the beginning, that will tell you where to go. So following the money is like in a startup, it's a really good way to, no, that's not always the case. I guess you can have the visionary aspect of like, the Henry Ford is, if I asked my customers what they wanted, I would have created a faster horse. But not everybody is out creating what's called a new category, which is what he did. He created a new category that didn't exist. So not everybody's doing that. Okay. So what you do is you follow what the market receives back to you as feedback your your thing is working. And that is in the form of money, because then you know something is landing because it's very easy to create things and make zero from it. And then you need investors and capital and you still may make zero. So very few people create leading pioneering technology from scratch with no startup capital and then get tr- massive volumes of traffic like Instagram did when it used to be called Bourbon. And then it became Instagram and it had thousands of people showing up. And then it had you know over 80 million people posting photos like every day, like ridiculous volumes of people using Instagram, using these social media apps. The point being is that, you know, at that level, it's a different ballgame. When we're scaling up from the ground, you follow what works, all right? Because you don't need to spend three years figuring out, is this actually working? Because you can get feedback pretty quickly. So there's a, there's a little bit of, this is where I always get stuck for, for people and also myself is, there's this, there's this space you play in for a while where nothing's happening in terms of feedback that, that is relevant. So you're not getting enough shares, likes, follows, comments, uh, income coming in. So you have to have the vision and faith yourself it's working. At some point though, market feedback is really, really important to validate your idea. And, and that is, in my estimate, the best source of sales, right? And that's the best feedback for sure is knowing people are buying your product. So, okay, with that off the, the block, if something's working, do you then all of a sudden change it? Well, you do in extreme circumstances. You know, like I've got a couple of stories here I'll share with you in a second about what Burberry did and Harley Davidson's did that that actually worked. But you can look at if something's working for you, it's you want to really follow the winners. So there's following the money and following the winners. And in my personal um, business, we did this. We took over an existing business. This was one of the ventures we ran. We, we we took over an existing business. We followed the model of what worked exactly. And then we started adding some things on to see if things worked. We we're running dance classes on, on uh, in one of these things at one of the days 
of the week was a Wednesday. Wednesday was one of the worst days of the week. We It just sucked so much. So we tried one year, two year, three, two and a half, three years of just different classes. We did a year of each class trying to see it. We pounded marketing efforts to get it in the door. We were doing things that were not true to our actual company values. So we were trying to do play in a space to attract different audiences. So for example, ballroom dancing is what we sort of specialize in as ex dance sport competitors and professional dancers. So we thought we'd try some Zumba, hated that. Like didn't, <laughs> did not like that at all anyway, but that market share had already been taken up. We didn't really want to compete with that. So after a while we just killed it. And then we went into, you know, all props to people who do Zumba. That's cool, but that wasn't our space. And then we went into salsa, same problem. You know, there's people want to do it, but we weren't that passionate about it and getting that audience. Oh, it's not really our space. So we canned that. Then we tried another type of group class. Didn't like that, canned it. And so the numbers allowed us to know what was working, the, the, you know, tracking the winners and the losers, like knowing what sucked, right? Then we struck gold. We found a space people want to play in. And I can talk about the story of that later. I guess it relates to more servicing clients and, and helping them identify what their needs are before they're slightly met. Like, I guess this is, look, to be honest, that's where the Henry Ford analogy really kicks in for us. It's like, okay, what wasn't working for us, uh, our clients didn't necessarily know they needed either. So we definitely, instead of building a faster horse, created a new space in the market, which other studios ended up copying. And so the the class we ended up putting in place became the best class we ran year in and year out, year in and year out, just constantly filling up and moving beyond classes into lessons, into examinations and teaching and medals, like it just, and pro-am and competitions, it just spawned our studio to another level. And, but we had to go like three years of just figuring that out. And we will, the whole time we we're using feedback to, to guide that. Now, at, at a certain level, you don't change that. Once it starts to work, it's crazy to go back and say, oh, we'll just do something else. And that's a big problem for entrepreneurs is we go, all right, product's working, course is working, people are buying it, I'm going to do something else. I'm so guilty of this. Like I've knocked some things out of the park so quickly. Some, some projects have just had a really good run in the beginning. And then it's like, all right, let's just make something else. And then you lose people, right? You lose the momentum. So you have to build it back up. Now, now, will Facebook go into Meta do this? No, it gets new talking points, but you got to think, why did they do it? Because at some point, people start paying attention. And at some point, everyone's paying attention. And, and now to make a move like, well, let's change, let's, let's change the legal structure is one thing, but then you sell it to everyone as a vision. You've got to sell it to everyone as a mission. We're going to be the metaverse. We're going to augment reality and life and holograms and everything's coming together in a metaverse. And really it's your metadata at work, right? As well. But the point being is that all of those trials, tribula tribulations and six years of negative press have really impacted Facebook in a lot of ways. That doesn't mean it's going to, you're going to stop them. It just means they need to make their own pivot. Now, is that a wise move? Time will tell. But what's happened in the past? What's worked in the past? Well, Burberry, you know, in the 90s, uh, a lot of gangs were, were wearing Burberry, all right? It was very detrimental to their public image. They had association between that brand and basically gangland culture. In 2001, Burberry uh, basically got a, they had a, a director come in and uh, a CEO and a director basically get Emma Watson, you know, star of Harry Potter and Kate Moss to incorporate the class back into Burberry and it worked successfully. 
Harley Davidson as well were also uh, losing out in their brand um, images as well. Uh, but they've also been iconic, but they were also on the verge of bankruptcy at one point. And then they rebranded themselves and lifted themselves well out of bankruptcy. Now, McDonald's is no stranger to this too. I mean, you remember McDonald's as a kid to now, I saw a meme that I thought was all so funny. But you had McDonald's back in the day. Do you remember they had like crazy like cheeseburger and burger chairs and it was, it was a really fun, bit tacky, weird-looking, cartoon-esque restaurant. And you look at it now, and this meme was like it showed that picture of what we grew up with. It's like, oh, it looks like McDonald's has also grown up into a sad, depressed adult. And it showed the current McDonald's, and it was like, you know, just a gray building, rendered, like just, you know, a McDonald's home. It was just modernistic, you know, but not really characterly appealing in that sense i thought it was really funny but you know they do that too they, they have rebranded classically but you don't really see the logo changing a lot right so it's interesting how much of a logo on a massive scale can have an impact for startups i wouldn't worry so much about a logo because you you've, you can figure that as you go the the, the the type font the logo is a big deal in businesses that are huge so starbucks as well They've changed, but like you got to be really careful because you can have massive, you can either make a huge amount more sales and bring new customers in and bring new life, or it can have a huge backlash as we're about to find out. Um, Airbnb have clearly, you know, changed from their blue, you know, Airbnb insignia to the, the to the, that pale pink coral, you know, color now. So it's, it's rare that you're going to, that you're going to see this as a natural progression, but the changes you make for you and I. I always think of them more less about the corporate brand logo identity problem versus positioning problem. So where are you? Who are you delivering to? Who are you serving? What are they getting? Are you delivering? You know, like like fulfilling that at on a repeatable process, you know, getting to that space because it's, it's not really that clever to go, well, how do Uber do it? I'll do it like that because you, you got they're at scale. Okay, and so when you're at global scale, very different operating problems and procedures. It's the same as going from one million to ten million. Different problems. It's why a lot of companies. It's it's pretty amazing. Mark Zuckerberg's even in the CEO position, really, because very few people can get to that level themselves. Because normally, what happens is to get to even hundred million, you you often need a different CEO in place because of just the skill set required to run such a bigger enterprise or even a billion dollars. It's the same problem. So there's something to be said about that on the one hand. But look, let's understand: is this a good thing, like for yourself to think about to do? Like, where do you position yourself in the market? And then when you get traction on that, start to realize where you specialize in. This is something that I'm dialing in myself constantly because it takes it takes time. And then when you get a message that resonates with the audiences, pay attention to that and harp on it more. And then it's like a it's like a beautiful loop because it keeps feeding back. The market feeds back to you your promise, you're delivering the promise and then you keep repeating it and then that's what you get known for. Now let's get into some of the fails because this is always always good to um to to look at and this is going to come more from HubSpot had a really good uh, infographic on this one. But Netflix, a Netflix story is amazing themselves. You know, they, Blockbuster refused to buy Netflix. That's how, that's how lack of, <laughs> lacking vision, the uh, the video streaming industry basically <laughs> was back in the day that Blockbuster would say, nah, it's, that's not the future essentially. <laughs> but Netflix in 2011, were going to divide their DVD mailing service. And I remember using that right back in 2011 in England 
using the Netflix mailing service. I actually used another one called, I think, Love Love Film. I think it was, something like that. And they were a mail order thing that competed with Netflix. But they were going to call themselves Quickster, okay, and go and deliver your DVDs from there. And Netflix would just remain as it is. Yeah, that that did not work. People had a negative impact from customers. They're like, that, that is a terrible name. No. So, yeah, you've never heard of that probably because of that reason. Now, Pizza Hut had the same thing. 2009, Pizza Hut made the decision to rebrand The Hut in order to target the next texting generation. <laughs> Despite efforts, Pizza Hut to keep out um, these plans down low, word got out, and within weeks, the public were ripping the idea apart. So Pizza Hut stopped that one, didn't they? Who else? We've got BP. Yeah. People love oil companies, by the way. So you can imagine what a rebrand. BP made their logo like a nice sun to show how earth-friendly they are. And then they had that massive oil spill. And they spent about $211 million on the logo design. And people, yeah, they don't like you anyway to begin with. So <laughs> happy to use your petrol, right? But, you know, don't like you as a company. So that's always fun. Pepsi. Oh, Pepsi just gets a bad run. I feel bad for me. I like drinking Pepsi occasionally. But, like, you know, Pepsi gets a bad run, doesn't it? So, I mean, you got to think about that. that was third. Dr. Pepper, most people don't know this, was the first soft drink. Coke was second, followed by Pepsi in the 1890s. And I think in the, I said originally it was what name? It was Brad's Drink. And if, I think a couple of years, 1893, I think Pepsi came around or Brad's Drink. And then in 1895 or 96, it started to become Pepsi Cola. Interesting enough, Pepsi and Coke are actually made from cocaine leaves or coca leaves. So that's interesting. Well, not Pepsi, I should say. Pepsi want it desperately, but they can't get it because Coke have the monopoly on that leaf and the only people allowed to import it into America. So that's what can happen when you're a massive company, which by the way, that just brings me to a really interesting side point now I think of it, because again, I riff on these as I go. Think of it like this, Coke, cocaine, most people would say not a good drug for people to be able to access and take. But, you know, it does have medicinal properties when you don't turn it into cocaine, the coca leaf. Now, Coke is the only company that can import that leaf from Peru into America, and no one else can do it. And there is a trade agreement on that. Now, Coke cannot and will not let anyone use that leaf for anything else, medicinal or otherwise. And Pepsi have been trying to sue them for years and get into Peru to be able to take it and bring it back because the flavor, one of the secret ingredients for Coke is the flavor extracted from that leaf. Hence the word Coke, uh, cola, right? It's in there. Now, cocaine used to be in the drink, but actually they still use the leaf extract for the flavor. So how is that for what happens to monopolies, right? When you become massive. So you just got to think like when everything becomes integrated, I don't know, is that always a good thing? Because you don't know what deals have been made because in, in look, here's the thing. This is a good point to think about in the except, and it's a side tangent, but let's just go with it. In, in a new emerging space where soft drinks in the early 1900s were an emerging, emerging empire, so to speak, coming through to, you know, so was consumerism part of the industrial revolution wave. You've got this real problem where, you know, laws are being formed around an industry that and, and agreements and trade and shipping's exponential and and starting to grow and intercontinental trade and railroads. And so you got this massive divergence, which brings new problems, which brings new laws and new agreements. 
And if you're already established as a company, you can get in there and put your little money at play, right? And get, get your own little way, as is with Coke and these leaves. Now, with tech giants, what do you think is happening? Well, most of them tell, you know, have their nannies <laughs> on standby, watch my child with that technology, you know, make sure they don't watch too much of this or don't use too much of my phone. And these are people that run these big companies, by the way. So, you know, social media giants like Steve Jobs was renowned for not letting his kids use an iPad. So we just got to remember something here about big companies. Not always, you know, we might use them for day-to-day -day stuff. Like, fair enough. Like, I'm not against that. Like, I, I'm a hypocrite if I said I was. But come on, like, you got you to gotta think for a little bit here. Like, is it always good for some of these uh, companies to have so much of the data, right? So much of these things and be in a position where they can manipulate laws of new spaces. You know, that's something you got to think about. Now, what do we do about it? I have no idea because it's not going away. So I think it's best as a creator to learn how to use it. Like, I think it's best to know how to work with it. Don't give away too much of yourself online. Don't protect yourself as best you can, but learn to play the game and don't shy away from it. Well, just because these things happen doesn't mean you're going to stop drinking Coke, right? So you might get on your high horse about it, but you're not going to do much about it, really. You're gonna, if you don't drink Coke, that's good. You know, good for you. Don't do that. But like, you know what I mean? People are still going to drink it. And same with Pepsi. But Pepsi went through a rebrand, right? They went from a, 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 a they've, like I said, they've just been, they just haven't, you know, come on, they're still doing well. They're still around. So they're part of that, they're part of that Phoenix club, you know, the, the companies that can last over a hundred years, but yeah, they ain't doing too well with their logos. They paid a million dollars for a logo to get rebranded. Didn't work. So, you know, T Tropicana Juice, The Gap did the same thing. Oh my God, their logo was horrible. They they went from their nice blue and in, in their, their, their type font, uh, white type font to like Gap with a little square above it. It just looks, it actually looks horrible. You should Google that image. Anyway, the point being is that you've got some terrible rebrand logo fails for household names. You have... Now, so that's one thing that can work for or against a company. Then you have uh, companies that change a name. Very few change names. Like that, that's really rare. Like it's super, super rare. It's actually, you can find the, 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 the data on that, but it, it's, it's so rare because the company's name itself, once it becomes established, they don't really do it. So Facebook is now meta. Doesn't mean Facebook becomes meta. Like you're up. If it updates on your phone like that, that is going to be game changing for the world. We'll update this episode. So let's look at what we're thinking about now. Okay, where are you at in all this? It depends on the level. If you're just getting into making your own business scale and grow and do things online, nobody probably knows who you are if you're just starting out. So that's good. So you have a, you have a few options. Let's have a look at them. So starting out online, because nobody knows you, you can make a lot of mistakes, all right? You're in that space of playing where you're trying to figure out your message and, and you'll know what resonates because people will, will gravitate towards it by comments like shares. So vanity metrics really help here to navigate what you're going to do. So you pay attention to that, right? But you can make a lot of mistakes. Not when everyone's watching you. It's different, right? So it's different at that point. You pay a higher price to play at that point. So, okay. Now, if you've got lots of traction and people are watching you and you're starting to build in your scale, like sort of where I'm at and you're in this funny space, it's going to be tempting to want to create new ideas and new ventures. And that's good because something may be knocked out of the park as well, but you should still deliver on the fundamentals of what worked to begin with. So, you know, I know I've got a series of, of certain videos that work very, very well. And so I just, I create more of those, but then I'm trying to be at the behest of a algorithm. Now, if you look at someone's YouTube channel, for example, like Mr. Beast, 
what's good with big creators like that is if you look back at their first videos, go back and look at them, like scroll down to like the early 2010s where he was at school and he's just like shooting a video himself. Like there's no way you'd think this guy one day is going to make videos that have 54 million views in, in like one video. You look at them and go, wow, like he's just recording himself and he's recording himself play some games. And now he's not really, now he's giving away houses. You know, this guy has got money. He's just giving away to build basically buy views. It's essentially the strategy, but it's awesome. It's entertaining and it's fun, right? Like he'll bury himself in a coffin alive. So I don't really watch it, but it's great to see the evolution. Now he's found out what works. People really like when I give stuff away like that, like big F off size prizes that are crazy, right? Like as if you wouldn't want a house for a dollar and he's done that many times, you know, or different prizes like that, that are crazy, like giving away a private island. And so the point is, is that, okay, did he start out like that? No. Now, would he change and go back to gaming? Well, if he did, he'd lose a huge part of his audience. And maybe he gains another part because he's got so much traction, but it's a huge risk, isn't it? So as you scale up, you dial in and you find what works and you go on it. And that could be the thing that potentially blows you up. That's what's so exciting, right? That's what's so exciting about creating is that you don't quite know what's going to be the thing that lands. I mean, like in a company like Facebook, was it Zuckerberg himself that was the only person for his success? No, it was like everyone from the Winklevosses that he potentially screwed out of money and ideas uh, to the first starters in Facebook to Reid Hoffman, who founded LinkedIn, who helped, I think, give him some seed money. I think that's how that happened too. He gave him, gave him some money to, to help continue Facebook growing and scaling as well as, uh, what I think I oh, know no, it wasn't Elon Musk, it was Peter Thiel, I think one of the other PayPal founders. And so, but the point is, is that it wasn't just him on his own. Okay. And so that's what happens with all of us. We have this team, we find what works and we're going to need more people. And so at your point in the journey, you might have lots of views and you might need a small team. You might need one or two people coming to you. You might need to know what's working, what's not. You might need to know how to scale the next bit with another person helping you or contributing in some way. And so that's a good, reasonable space to play in. Now, when we look at your positioning and your branding and what you actually want to do, well, the question is, what are you wanting to do? Like, where do you want to sit? And you got to you, you got to be comfortable with that, but it, don't be beholden to it. Remember one of these things that we can take away from Google becoming, you know, Alphabet and Facebook becoming uh, Meta uh, from a purely business and you know perspective. They are in a position where they can acquire different brands, so to speak, and different businesses to just further the interests of this one company. And so is that good or bad? That's not what we're discussing. It's more about the, the str strategy there. So you yourself have to sort of decide how do you want to operate? You can have yourself as a personal brand, and then you can be known as a topic expert in one, two, or three areas, generally in one area. And then that's the thing you're sort of known for and you're the personal brand. So it's not like you go from being a well-known neurosurgeon and then all of a sudden you're now building a YouTube channel on golf. You know, that's not necessarily how these brand images happen. Doing pivots like that's pretty difficult and rare. So you get known for being in a space. Jamie Oliver, you know him as a world-famous celebrity chef. 
And he's known for a certain rustic style of cooking. And Heston Blumenthal is a gastronomic chef, right? So he cooks totally different styles, like down to the molecular level of flavor. He is interested in the science of meals. So he's very fine dining. One of the top restaurants in the world. Gordon Ramsay's is sort of a mixture of the two, you know, in a way. So like the markets love these. But if Gordon Ramsay decided to just go down the road of like, KFC and fast food, you know, restaurant owning, I don't know, people might get a bit affronted by that. So, you know, knowing where you start to stand on that traction means you then give up a part of yourself to serve that audience because you may have other desires and wants, but this is something I'm finding out that you can do anything you want, so to speak, you can retire whenever you want, but you don't also want to be stupid when you start to find what works. And this is a message for myself, as much as it is to you, I am by no means on the top of any hierarchy, look at down at you saying, do this. This is something I'm uncovering as I go through this process of scaling. It's like, okay, don't change the brand that works. Keep the messaging going that lands. Keep repeating the messaging that lands. Keep building content around what's getting attention. Even create content that doesn't get attention that matters to you because it might be better off in a few years, but be focused on what is working. Use sales as a way to help navigate the growth, especially to a million dollars, because by then you're still figuring it all out, to be honest. After a million, it's more about repeatable systems in a way and what's going what's gonna to happen from there. But that's my thinking going forward. It's like, okay, that is building the audience that's going to enable the grand, uh, enable the grand plans to emerge. And you know, every company had this, didn't they? Like, let's think about it. Apple had their first million dollars worth of users. So did Facebook in terms of you know revenue. I don't like that example with Facebook because that you know you're the product and so am I when you use Facebook. So they're not a yeah I don't yeah I don't think they have that value proposition correct um, because they don't they don't say that but that's pretty much how it works. Otherwise, why would you have ads, right? So anyway, okay. So but if we look at the bigger companies, you know, think about that logic. It works very very well. The first people who bought Teslas, you know, they're the hardcore you know adopters, and so that's who you've got right now, and you're trying to find and build those raving fans. So I hope. Some of these lessons stand out to you. In fact, what did stand out to you? Why don't you send me a question and let me help navigate you as you as you do. If you go to anchor.fm and find my podcast, you can send me a message and I can incorporate it and we can actually talk it out and we can work through some of these issues that you may have and that I am finding as I scale as well. So I know going forward that it is in between that sort of six-figure to seven-figure territory is absolutely dialing in a unique selling proposition. It's positioning of where you are in the market, being known for the thing you do and not really pivoting away from that once you found it. And then reinforcing the messaging around that in all the ads and all the marketing, all the graphics and daring to be a little bit different, right? Or massively different in a way if you're new to, to the space and you're doing something that's unheard of. But always, always a pleasure talking to you. It's been great to bring this to you. And I look forward to sharing some more insights and updates as we go forward in the future episodes.